The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Hey, if you guys want to make your way to your seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. Wanna um, just mention a couple things before I have Andy come up and talk. Um, we have some books back on the back table here. Um, there's more that were upstairs last night. There will be more tonight as well. Um, but just want to make mention two different books. Um, first um, by Nate, um, Notes from the Tilter World and Death by Living are his two nonfiction books. The fiction books are fantastic, um, not just for children, uh, but also for children, but fantastic books. Um, but these two books I would highly recommend. I think when Brian and I were becoming friends and uh, talking about me moving down to Denver, when we both realized that we loved these two books, we were like, oh, yeah, this, this friendship will work. Um, these, uh, these books have been game changer for me. And uh, in Fort Collins, there's people here. I, after I read Notes from the Tilted World, I was like passing it out like candy um, to everybody I could, saying, read this, read this, read this. You should read the Bible, yes, but you also should read this. Um, so I encourage you to get those. And also, um, as uh, Andy prepares to come up again, he's the executive editor at Christianity Today. He's also written uh, a number of books, two of which uh, I was talking to Jared earlier and, uh, and Jared was essentially saying, these books are, I mean, this has got to be kind of like must-reads for everybody in our church, and I would agree. Um, culture-making, as we think about how do we, how do we engage with culture? We are engaging with culture. How do we do so well? Um, for a lot of Christians, there's kind of this depart from, retreat from culture. But how do we engage with culture well? How do we make sense of this world around us? How do we interpret it? And what do we do with the world that's been given to us? What do we make of the world? And so this kind of takes us into um, a, lot of, a little of what he talked about last night. How do we pursue order and abundance um, in this world? And how do we pursue flourishing in this world? And then um, Playing God um, is really an amazing book, really about what do you do with power and strength? What is power and strength both in institutions and as individuals? What do we do with it? Do we use it to... Um, crush people, to oppress, to suppress, or do we use power and strength actually to lay down our lives for the flourishing of the people uh, around us? He's also coming out with a new book soon on strength and weakness, which I think takes some of these ideas and dives deeper into them, which I'm excited about. Um, but has, he just thought hard about um, how we engage in this world. What do we do with the lives we've been given um, as humans? And what does it mean for us as church leaders to disciple people into being fully human? To, to bearing the image of God in all of our vocations in every sphere of life. And so excited for you, Andy, to come up and, and share with us. So thanks. Thank you. Well, Nate, that was awesome. And part of me just wants to have another hour of conversation about what you said and keep pushing and pushing back a little bit on some things. But, wow, really, really stimulating and challenging. I mean... <laughs> I think all the really amazing things in the world start in little basements with like a dozen people. But what we heard from Nate and what we all could add to it is if we had more time to talk because of the kind of people who would come on a Saturday morning to this, this is the radical challenge for us in our time. Uh, and it, and our, our faithfulness or not with this moment we've been given, this kind of hinged moment, of a lot of failure, I think, of Christians to rise to their calling in the last hundred years of American history, um, and a lot of success of people who have alternative stories kind of taking control of culture. But this moment where we still have a lot of agency and options, uh, and people will still meet with you in New York, even now, you know, and, 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 and Hollywood, and, 
what we do with this next generation and what the kind of artists we raise and the kind of uh, culture makers generally we raise, I, I just think it's pivotal. And there was a very similar moment 100 years ago-ish, 115 years ago, let's say, in the, the modernist um, challenge to Christian faith. And the dominant, there, there were two dominant responses to the rise of modernism, which was really driven by, on the one hand, Darwinian theories of origins of life, and on the other, uh, historical critical method relating to ancient texts. And, and one group of Christians who were the ones in cultural power largely accommodated both of those worldviews. And now the churches that they were stewards of literally have been sold. <laughs> this church would have been in some sense a participant, uh, I think, in that accommodating mainline response. But the other response was this very attenuated fundamentalist withdrawal from culture that was driven by uh, fear, by grief, by envy, uh, just a lot of um, sub-Christian, really, responses to cultural marginalization. And we have an opportunity to do something totally different if we choose um, a different way, even though we will probably face as wrenching changes in the position of Christians in culture as the fundamentalists and their and the modernist Protestants did, we have a chance to do it differently, but it all depends on the posture we take. And I just feel like you named for us some very creative, and I don't mean creative as in, ooh, that's innovative and interesting, like deeply positive responses to the world around us. So, thank you. I think what I want to try to do in the next half hour uh, leading up to some conversation is, um, is something a little, it's a, it's a different tack from what Nate was doing. I want, I've been trying to think about what can I say about vocation, human calling, that will be true for every human being? Because I find that in relatively privileged environments, and I sense I'm in one of those environments when I'm with you, um, it's easy to reduce topics of conversation, or sorry, topics of vocation to conversations that only apply to a very narrow slice of human beings. Human beings with a great deal of education, often with options, vocational options, um, lots of things that narrow it down so that we can plausibly say on stage last night, very naturally, oh man, a barista, that would be a, a terrible job. And everyone's like, oh yeah, man, that's the worst, like having to be a barista. <laughs> It's like, okay, this applies to like 2% of humanity. <laughs> and, and just to expand the dynamic range a little bit, what happens to all of us in the last 10 years of each of our lives, whatever form those last 10 years will take. For most of us, those 10 years will probably not involve paid work, given life expectancies and, and senescence and so forth. will involve a huge amount of dependence on other people. Um, Great limitations. I mean, many of us will end up losing uh, at least one of our senses, our hearing or our sight. Some of us will lose both. Um, what will we be able to say about vocation that will still apply to us when we aren't these beautiful, well-dressed young people who show up today? What will still be true on that day that is going to be part of our story? Is God going to be in that part of our story, too? And what will it mean to bear the image in that part? And then... In my, I kind of frame that my next book, I, I, talk, I frame my next book around the topic of flourishing, and I, I say, um, you really, the great danger of our time in certain circles is to mistake, uh, f to equate flourishing with gentrification. 
<laughs> so, like a neighborhood starts to flourish when there are people with yoga mats in it. And, you know, when prices go up and Whole Foods moves in, you're like, oh, it's so flourishing. And, okay, but, but, okay, the most flourishing human being who ever lived did not, as far as we know, carry a yoga mat, though he did tell one guy to pick up his mat and walk, so I guess maybe, I don't know. Um, he did not even have a home, let alone a nice, you know, beautifully renovated, like, warehouse now turned into a loft. Like, he didn't have any of this stuff, and yet he lived the most flourishing human life. And we have to allow the life of Jesus to completely interrogate our assumptions about what a flourishing life is. So that's, on the one hand, I kind of frame it by talking about Jesus, but I also frame it by talking about my niece, Angela, who's my sister's third child, who was born um, 11 years ago now with uh, trisomy 13, which means that every cell in her body has three copies of the 13th chromosome instead of two. So trisomy 21 is uh, Down syndrome, and we know that that, comes with all kinds of challenges, although, although often actually gifts and amazing capacities even uh, uh, persons with Down syndrome have. Trisomy 13 is far, far more debilitating. So uh, my niece probably cannot meaningfully see or hear, uh, cannot walk, cannot provide for herself, cannot communicate, knows nothing of language. It's really hard to say how much she even knows of her own parents uh, being able to interact with them, um, and half of the babies who are born with trisomy 13 die in the first week of life. Uh, but Angela, amazingly, is now 11 years old. Um, everything in our family, my extended family, has changed with the arrival of this image bearer of God who can do nothing um, for herself. I'm, that's not quite right. She's able to sit, uh, and she can, she can, she does have a uh, Trisomy kids, uh, 13 kids, tend to use their touch. Uh, they can reach out and grab things, and then they can bring them to their mouth. So anything she can reach, she'll bring to her mouth and interact with orally. And that's what Angela can do in the world. <laughs> and if you can't talk about image-bearing in a way that includes Angela and includes all of us at whatever the weakest moment of our life will be, I think it's a lie, and I think it's actually profoundly dangerous. It becomes actually a rationalization for eugenics, which was, by the way, the other thing that the modernist Protestants were really into. They were really into this idea of perfecting the human race so that it could bear the image of God. But what came with that was eliminating defects in the human race. So, what can we say that applies to all of us all the time about our vocation? So here's my what I've tried, and I, this, I wrote this little piece up, some of you might have seen it, um, it's a little piece on my blog that you can Google uh, called The Three Callings of a Christian. I think there are three things that all of us who bear the name of Christ have a, a role to play in doing. And the first is, um, and I, I'll fill this out in a minute, but the first is to bear the image of God. There is something about being human that comes with it. The, the first basic vocation is you. your first calling is to reflect God into the world, uh, Tom Wright talks about as this kind of angled mirror that reflects the reality of who God is into, the, into his creation, and then that in some way reflects the creation back to the creator. So bear the image of God. I'm, I'm going to spend some time trying to elucidate that. And that calling we share with every human being, no matter their faith, experience, or tradition. And I I love the way this language of image bearing has become available again to the church because 
it gives us a way to talk about culture that is not just Christian culture, but is something that every human being is doing to some extent. Every human being, in some way, is reflecting the image into the world. Um, and even the ones who don't know the name of the one they worship respond involuntarily with expressions of awe and wonder to the world and in that way reflect the creation back to the creator. So we have this in common with all of our neighbors. It's marvelous common ground to be able to think about my, the neighborhood I live in, how, how are my neighbors bearing the image of God, how are we bearing it together, the place I work, the school that my children go to, and I don't have to come up with a Christian excuse to be in that world or in those professions. It's just an image-bearing thing to do, to educate, to garden, to build things, to, to build buildings. Um, this is just image-bearing, full stop. It doesn't have to have a Christian reason, doesn't have to have a Christian fish on it. Um, but there's a second thing that we're called to do. The second calling of a Christian is, is to be part of the story of restoring the image of God. So the Christian claim, the kind of unique Christian claim, is that the image has in some way been compromised, to say the least, or perhaps entirely lost in certain respects, and that God has initiated a rescue mission to restore his image. Um, I'm going to try to talk about this tonight at a little more length. Um, And what it means to be Christian, or for that matter, part of Israel, actually, because Israel is God's first pass, as it were, (laughs) at restoring his image. It's an image-restoring people. Uh, out of him comes the the icon of the invisible God, the Son of God, Jesus. Now, Jesus has poured out his spirit on all flesh, old, young, male, female, men servants, maid servants, all classes, all, all people who bear his name, and they are now sent into the world to bring back the original image with all the flourishing that it was meant to make, over and against, and sometimes in direct conflict and confrontation with the forces that seek to eradicate the image from the world. So, really, if you're a Christian, what am I, what's my calling? If anyone asks you that question, the, the proper answer, it seems to me, is, well, how are you bearing the image? And then, if you are a follower of Jesus, how are you part of God's image restoring? And then there's a third thing, which is what I've been calling your contingent calling. Um, so contingent is this kind of weird word from philosophy that basically, as I understand it, seems to mean <laughs> things that could be otherwise. That's something that's contingent kind of could be one way, could be another, maybe it depends on something else. Uh, it, they're not necessary. Necessary things have to be the way they are. Contingent things could be another way. And that's almost everything we do. <laughs> so my, what's my contingent calling right now? Well, here I am. I could be somewhere else. I could not have gotten on the plane yesterday. My, actually, the plane I was supposed to be on was canceled. Uh, maybe I couldn't have gotten on the plane. I wouldn't be here, but I got here, and I've got an hour with you, and my contingent calling is to stand here and try to articulate some things that will be helpful in your leadership and, ha- and foster a conversation. Uh, but that is contingent. It's dependent on so many things. Uh, I happen to have full command of my vocal tract today. I could wake up... Uh, I mean, Neil woke up... Uh, are you, Neil? Is he in the room? Uh, yeah, Neil woke up, and every day that I've seen him so far, he's been feeling worse, right? And maybe tomorrow he'll lose his voice. Well, suddenly, what happens if I lose my voice? What would I do? Well, I'm still, the key thing is, I'm still called to bear the image and restore the image, but I may lose my voice, and I can't stand and give a talk for an hour. Uh, I may, it's not out of the question, I'm 47 years old this afternoon, I could have a heart attack, I could have a stroke, I could step in front of a bus at the wrong moment. Uh, It might completely take me out, or it might profoundly damage my body. 
in a way that I wouldn't even be able to recall or understand the notes and concepts that I have to present. Uh, it so easily could be otherwise, and one day it will be otherwise. And the, the, the trick here in putting these things in this order is we tend to pay, try to pay so much attention to our contingent calling, like what am I called to do? When people say that, they usually mean what, what things am I called to do? Well, that could all change in a heartbeat. Uh, and you really don't know. All you can do is today, with what you've been given, try to be faithful with it. Uh, you, you really do not know what else you're going to have. But whatever happens, even if you do have a stroke that rens renders you incapable of communication with other human beings, you will still be bearing the image of God as long as you're living. And you will actually, I think, this might take a little digging to figure out how it could be so, but I actually think you could still be completely part of restoring the image of God in the world. Because I will tell you, the arrival in, in our family of Angela, Angela came into a family that, like every human family, is a mess. <laughs> my, my family, my extended family, my sister, myself, my parents, and our whole history of family. And Angela cannot do anything but we have reestablished bonds of honesty, trust, and love. Sorry, it's difficult to talk about. I would be emotional. Between me and my sister, between my sister and my parents, between our, our spouses and one another, there has been a restoration of a kind of love and trust that had been lost for 20 years because Angela's in our midst. And... So even though Angela can't, we, we look at a, a human being like that and they, we say they can't do anything. Well, but she's been profoundly part of restoring the image. So we tend to get this upside down. We pay all this attention to our contingent calling. When in fact, I actually think if you get the first two right, it almost doesn't matter what you do with whatever you've been given today. I mean, just do something. Do something with what you've been given. That's all you can do. Don't sweat it. <laughs> but what you really should sweat is... Am I bearing the image of God, and am I part of restoring the image of God? So, does that make sense so far? Um, I just find this helpful. I don't know, maybe... Uh, I'll increase, the older I get, the more obvious everything I say seems. I'm just like... I, I, I used to be looking for like these profound things. And I'm like, no, I think it's really obvious, and I feel like it's just kind of my job is to get up in front of people and say these obvious things. So, um, so I, I do, though, I've been thinking about then, obviously, the key question, and Nate, I, I love the way you, you put this, is, you know, well, if we're going to produce stuff that God rejoices in and loves, we have to know who God is. If we're going to have bearings for bearing the image and restoring the image, we're going to have to be able to describe what God is like in a way that relates to what human beings can do. So I want to give you three pictures of this, one of which I gave last night, and one of which I'm going to emphasize tonight. Um, but hopefully there won't be so much redundancy that you find it tedious. Um, so I want to give you th actually three two-by-twos that come out of the first three chapters of Genesis that show God at work in ways that I think map onto how human beings are meant to work, are meant to be in the world. Not just work in a narrow sense, but meant to be very broadly. So I, I'm really on a two-by-two -two kick right now in my life. And, I, and if I have time, I'm going to give you my unified theory of two-by-twos. I actually think there's a pattern that applies to every two-by-two -two I've ever seen. Um, so the first, Genesis 1, is, is a story of order and abundance. Uh, and 
Some of you were with us last night, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the first three days of creation are days of very elemental structuring of the cosmos using the ancient Hebrew cosmology that they shared with all their neighbors, the Babylonians and so forth, where God first uh, structures light and dark, which I think we can also think of as information, uh, the information content of reality. Um, then God structures heavens and earth, the two realms in the ancient cosmology, and then God structures sea and land. Um, and then days four, five, and six, you get the filling of each of those realms with, with abundance. And so this is as opposed to ev- every other. I, I actually think, last night I talked about the Babylonian creation epic, the Enuma Elish. Well, it's an epic about a lot of things. It includes a creation account. Uh, and and it, it has the world beginning in violence, Uh, beginning in this battle between Marduk and Tiamat. Um, And then there's another account in the Enum Elish of the creation of human beings. It's it's like Genesis has two stories. uh, The Elish has two. Uh, And in this one, the gods are fighting about who's going to keep the barbecue burning, basically. They like the smell of meat. And the gods are all lazy. None of them wants to tend the barbecue. So Marduk, who's always the hero, says, I have an idea. I'm going to create creatures who will dwell on the earth, and they'll constantly be barbecuing. That's the sacrifice offered in the temple. And the smoke will come up, and none of the gods will have to do any work. (laughs) And so what human beings are for in that is the solution to the laziness of the heavenly realm. And they're, they're slaves who keep the barbecue going so that the gods get their aroma. So this, again, is a, it's what you would call a, cos, a, a conflict cosmogony or a, a conflict anthropogeny. That is, where did the world come? Where did people come from? It came out of conflict. I actually think, it, I would, I'm suspecting that every non-biblical cosmogony, that is, every non-biblical story of how the world came into being and how human beings came into being, is actually a conf, conflict cosmogony. That is, it always presupposes a kind of violence. This is Darwinism. I, by the way, uh, fully believe that evolution happened in very much the way scientists say it happened. This might be a difference between me and me. Um, But I do not believe in Darwinism, which is the raising of a description of how creation has happened through long periods of time through development, raising that to a level of normative claims about how the world is. And what especially the original Darwinism said is it's all about competition between species. It's all about conflict to occupy niches with limited resources. Now, the latest version of Darwinism is actually pulling back on this because it doesn't seem like competition can actually account for speciation, and it turns out cooperation is much more powerful. But um, our modern myths of where the world came from are conflict myths, and what conflict myths always say is that you either have disorder or you have order, and violence is required to bring order. So, the, uh, I don't know, I, don't, I, I could go on and on about this. I don't think I will. The beautiful thing about the biblical picture is that it allows for abundant order. It doesn't construct this linear alternative where you've either got a machine, which is order with no abundance or teeming, or else you have chaos, which is what every conflict myth fears and sets up as the enemy. You've either got this perfectly predictable machine, or you've got a world of chaos. The, bi- the biblical story says, no, no, God created a cosmos, um, a, an entire world that has profound structure and at the same time has qualities of unpredictability, amazing variety. This is actually why I think evolution 
the, the empirical fact of evolution testifies to the glory of God, that evolution takes the basic information content of DNA and, and out of that, through the application of energy, especially from the sun, comes this incredible abundance of life. To me, that gives astonishing glory to God, that God could set up a world that actually then we are now realizing converges on complexity. So over and over, the eye emerges as a, fu- as a structural, functional unit in organisms because the world is actually designed to converge. And then Simon Conway Morris, the British biologist, will say, he happens to be a Christian, but he makes this argument in the pages of Nature and Science magazines. He says, the world is designed to converge on rational um, intelligence. It's designed to end up, and if you replayed the tape of evolution, it's not purposeless. This is a, this is a secular argument he's making, even though he himself happens to be a Christian. It's designed to converge on more and more cosmos. Um, so whether or not you believe that, uh, it's a plausible account, and, and it matches this biblical idea that the world starts with nothing, but where it's meant to go is greater, greater order and greater and greater variety. To anticipate my little unified theory of the two-by-two, two, essentially what happens is every two-by-two two is meant to go in this direction one way or another, greater and greater of two things coordinated that initially might seem opposed to each other, but actually are profoundly connected. But, but where the story goes wrong is when you start to live on this axis. And so the modern world lives teetering between machine and chaos. We have tried to create, a mach- we've tried to create machines in the world, and we've had certain limited kinds of success. So an airplane is a, a very elaborate, highly controlled, extremely successful machine. But but if, you, if your goal is to create a world that is all machine-like, strangely what happens is chaos starts to break out all over at the same time. <laughs> and um, it may or may not break out on your airplane journey, but you, we keep running up at, against the limits of this kind of modern dream, which was Francis Bacon was the first person who articulated this, of dominating the world in such a way that we human beings were able to control it. So the first image-bearing task is to add order and to add or elicit abundance. And every human activity ought to do both. So I, um, I'm literally doing this right now, I hope. <laughs> like the very first thing I did, I have three panels I want to draw you. And so just for my own use, I marked, you know, I marked out three spaces here. And that was just a little marker to myself so that uh, I knew where I was and knew where I was going. I, it's my job as a leader, as a speaker, a teacher, to have some sense of ordering for what I do. But as I present it, if, I, if I'm really doing my job, I both will present to you the structure I've already figured out, but even as I speak, things will occur to me that I've never thought of before, and I'll say them. And it'll get hopefully better and deeper than the last time I present. And then, in another uh, 10 minutes or so, oh, wow, look how time flies when you're up front. Um, uh, then we'll have a conversation And the goal is not just to get you to rote like little learning machines, repeat back to me what you heard. The goal is for you to say something that I never would have thought of, that no one else would have thought of. So I'm creating structure here so we can have an experience of abundance together. That's what parenting is. It's what church planning is. It's what accounting is. It's every human domain, if it's healthy, is doing both of these. And the distortion of human life is when humans are assigned tasks or roles that either have them just tending machines or that say, oh, we don't need any structure, just go for it. That's actually dehumanizing to ask people to do that. 
okay, so moving right along, the next one, this is Genesis 2. The trees of the garden were good for food, so they had utility, and they were a delight to the eyes, so they had beauty. So the next beautiful, beautiful, amazing thing about God's creation is everything in it is both useful and beautiful. Um, and so a flourishing world is one that has both of these qualities, utility and beauty. Uh, but uh, what's, you know, what's a world that has neither one, or what's stuff that has neither utility nor beauty? I don't know, what would that be? Wasteland, yes, wow, wasteland, yes, the waste, that's a great word, the wasteland is the place where it's not beautiful and nothing can live, nothing can survive off of it. Um, I think about kind of junk, you know, junk is stuff that is not useful, but it's not so nice that you want to lacquer it and use it to decorate your house, right, it's just, yeah, that's junk. Um, and then you have these two corners, which are the kind of danger corners, in a way, and so I was initially going to put, I was initially thinking, well, tools are useful without being beautiful. And then I'm like, that's not right. That's totally not right. Really great tools are actually strangely always aesthetically appealing. Like a, a great hammer, a properly balanced, even the feel of it, you're like, oh, that's beautiful. You want to hold it. You don't just want to pound nails with it. You want to look at it. That's kind of amazing, right? So actually tools are over here. Um, so really what this is, is utilitarianism, uh, which I am totally misspelling, utilitarianism. Uh, utilitarianism is the seeking of mere usefulness with no attention to aesthetics. So I'm old enough, I'm older than most in the room maybe, but I'm, probably all of you kind of remember the PC era, where PCs were designed by engineers with no aesthetic interests at all. There were these beige boxes with these slightly curved screens with green monospaced letters back in the day. It, they were useful, but they were really not. Now, there was certain elegance in the coding and the, kind of the underlying logic of them, but the things themselves were not, be were not beautiful. That's a utilitarian vision. Like, if we produce something useful, it's good enough. Steve Jobs and others come along and they say, why can't it be beautiful as well? Why can't we have liber uh, engineering and the liberal arts? And, and now, now all of our technology has this quality of usefulness and beauty because it, human beings respond to that. They're like, yes, that's way better than my ugly gray box that you put under the desk. Why, why would it have to be that way? It's not meant to be that way. A huge amount, though, of what people are asked to do in modern economies is just do utilitarian stuff. It's very damaging to human beings. On the other hand, so then I was going to put art down here. <laughs> uh, beautiful but not useful. And I actually think there's a little, little bit. I know, exactly right. It's not right because actually human beings need art to survive. Uh, we actually need beauty around us to survive, so that's clearly not right. Art is actually up here as well. It has uses that aren't immediately apparent, and it does challenge utilitarianism in certain ways. But actually what's down here is a kind of aestheticism, which is the the pursuit of beauty that is sort of disconnected from human needs, human limits, and just wanting kind of lovely things around. What, does somebody have an example? Photoshop. Oh, Photoshop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And especially Photoshop, I mean, when it's used to just make things prettier and prettier, but not in any way that actually serves kind of flourishing. Yes, yes, that's right. It's, yes, exactly. Things that just sort of immediately appeal 
but don't advance my ability to act in the world. Yeah. Throw pillows. <laughs> totally. I go to hotels, and the first thing I have to do is get rid of all these extra pillows on the bed. I'm like, you are not useful. You are mere beauty. Yeah. So, so the second quality of human vocation is every human being, um, to some extent. Now, I think this applies least, perhaps, to Angela, um, because of Angela's limits in what she can make. But even for Angela, I would say, at least she, she flourishes when she's surrounded, even Angela flourishes when she's surrounded by things that are both helpful to her, but are also uh, engaging her sense of, of pleasure and delight. And for her, that's mostly oral, so we have to be careful what's in reach, but it's not wrong to give her things that are ta have tactile interest. So that's what you do for trisomic tri kids. You give them stuff that's really interesting to touch. Um, so... Every good human vocation, again, in our parenting, in our churches, in our workplace, you know, down the street when we're with our neighbors, ought to be creating stuff that's useful and beautiful. So that's the next one. All right. I'm going to take uh, maybe 10 more minutes, but I promise in 10 minutes I'll stop so we can go wherever you want to go. But this is the most interesting one. I'm going to talk about this at more length and maybe a little more artfully tonight. Um, but this is Genesis 2 slash 3. Is, gets to actually something very specific about the image bearers, which is that the image bearers, it seems to me, end up invested with two things we often think don't go together, and they are authority and vulnerability. So the man and the woman are placed in the garden, this garden full of useful, beautiful things in this ordered, abundant world, and they're given dominion over it, so that's authority, uh, tonight I'll talk more about what I mean by authority. I, I define it as capacity for meaningful action. Uh, human beings have more of this than any other creature. We have more uh, ability to act meaningfully than any other creature at greater scope, greater scale, uh, all over the world. Um, and it's explicitly granted to us by God. Uh, have dominion over the other creatures, which, by the way, cannot possibly mean domination because God says have, have dominion over the things that fly in the air and swim in the sea. And what can pre-technological human beings do to control those realms? They can't. But they can behold them. They can attend to their flourishing. They can celebrate them. And they can think about how to order their lives in ways that allow that flourishing to continue. So dominion is not domination, but it is authority, without a doubt. At the same time, and this is the crazy thing about being an image bearer, a human being, is we have more vulnerability than any other creature. And the, uh, this is, it comes across in many ways. Uh, one is the length of human development is longer than any other creature. So we're born helpless, and we're com really completely helpless for all practical purposes for several years, uh, even after we're able to toddle around. Um, whereas other creatures, even our fellow mammals, are quickly able to uh, provide for themselves, find their own food even. They're weaned faster. Like in every way, human beings take longer. So we're de to be dependent is to be vulnerable. Um, another very intriguing symbolism of this is uh, the nakedness of the man and the woman. The man and the woman were naked, though without shame. Uh, but even without the conditions of shame, to be naked is to be insufficiently clothed to uh, flourish in your environment, potentially, and in relationship with others. And the man and the woman are, are exposed to one another, and they're in a protected garden environment, which is fine in 
Mesopotamia, but like you come to even Denver, <laughs> you're in trouble if, if you're around, you're naked. We, and every other creature has enough, has, has what it needs uh, to in, survive in its environment and m sort of mitigate risks of encounters with fellow creatures. But we human beings don't. So what is going on here? These creatures that have more authority than any other have more vulnerability than any other. So if you want image bearing, it seems to me you're going to be up and to the right here. And uh, my reformed friends get a little nervous at some point when you start talking about authority and vulnerability as imaging God. And they say, well, I see how authority images God because God's sovereign, you know, God rules, God is author of creation, got it. But how is God vulnerable? Because God is not exposed to risk in the way we are. God's not out of control in the way we sometimes feel when we're vulnerable. And I get that, and I don't want to deny the value of the doctrine and the sovereignty of God, but <laughs> I push back. I'm a Wesleyan, so I push back pretty hard. And I say, well, was it vulnerable for God to create the world with these image bearers in it? Who could one day turn on him? And vulnerable in the end, is a Latin root that means woundable. Vulnus is wound. One of the most extraordinary things we human beings, we Christians, sorry, we Christians believe is that uh, the resurrected body of Christ, which is present to the Father in the bond of love of the Spirit, like the, the body has wounds in it. It's like there are wounds in the triune life of God thanks to his creatures which suggests to me that in some way, if you're going to image God, you can't just image authority. You have to image vulnerability as well. So now we can start a two-by-two two here, and I'll do this briefly. Tonight I'll go into it a little more detail. So the opposite of image-bearing would be no authority and no vulnerability. And one word you could use for this is safety. And actually, a healthy human life actually starts down here. So when you're born, you have, very, you have relatively little capacity for meaningful action, but also if you're fortunate and your parents are able to nurture you, they protect you from a lot of vulnerability. They protect you from risk. And then gradually as you grow, like the way we're meant to grow is we grow in authority and we grow in vulnerability. Uh, by the way, I'm thinking about vulnerability, not just emotional transparency or whatever, but as exposure to risk. When we act, we're we could lose something that matters. And human maturation is meant to go in this direction, I think. Uh, we are supposed to become both more capacious and authoritative and more exposed to risk and open to wounds. So that would be the way it ought to be. And the icon of the invisible God, Jesus, no one ever had as much authority as Jesus but no one opened himself up to as much vulnerability as Jesus. He was both. And this leads to flourishing. I would say that if you think about the times in your life when you've experienced the deepest flourishing, I bet that someone in your life was exercising authority at that season or time, and someone was exposing themselves to great risk uh, at that time, or you yourself were. That would be my bet. So now we can draw the false axis, and we can say, what happens when you have vulnerability without authority? High, high vulnerability, low authority, and one word for this, I would say, is poverty. That the essence of poverty is not just a lack of money, though that can be a, a, an aspect of it, 
But the essence of poverty is being completely exposed to all the vulnerabilities that human beings have in the world, to the environment and to one another, but not be able to act in any meaningful way in that. That's being poor. And probably six billion, five billion people on the planet, that's their primary reality today, is they live with tremendous vulnerability but very little capacity to shape their environment as human beings were meant to. It's a profound degradation and, and destruction of the image to live down here. And then this leads to the other corner, which is authority without vulnerability, which sounds promising. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, that, that sounds good. How can I get some of that? And this is the promise, I think, of idolatry. So what every idol promises is two things. Number one, you'll be like God. Number two, you shall not surely die. And what are those two promises? If not, you will have all the authority you want with none of the vulnerability and dependence that you fear. So every idol promises authority without vulnerability. And then the interesting thing is, all idols initially work. That is, they more or less, you kind of get what you wanted at first. But they don't keep working. And actually, what every idol does, it starts out promising you this, up and to the left. But idolatry actually, I think, is what generates, in the end, poverty. That is, every idol says you're going to have authority without vulnerability, but what actually ends up happening is you end up with vulnerability without authority. Yeah? Google. <laughs> well, so, and, and they are doing it literally. Uh, many of the transhumanists in Silicon Valley are doing it in the hopes of literally ending mortality. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So it's essential to the understanding idols is that they work at first. Even Baal worked at some point. Why the heck do people start ordering their worship around a figurine of a, of a bull? Well, a little cow model. <laughs> well, because at some point they were desperate for rain and someone said, well, you know, obviously it's very complex, who knows exactly how this converged, but at some point worshiping the sky god, who was named Baal in the ancient Near East, led to the rain you needed. They all start out working. We believe there's demonic forces that amplify this and amplify the deception of these things. The problem is they don't keep working. Now, we no longer worship little figurines of cows and bulls. Now, our dominant idol is technology. That, and it's working. But we've only had it for like 50 years. Of course it's working. We're very, like on the scale of the history of religions, how long did it take for Canaanite religion to get to the point where it's no longer working. Oh, and by the way, this is the other thing about idols. They, they promise a lot and initially demand very little, but then they start delivering less and less, demanding more and more, until eventually they demand everything and deliver nothing. And this is like drugs. It's like addiction. So addiction is a form of this. You see, the first few hits are amazing. Like you feel godlike in a way you've never felt before, but then it start, stops working so well you have to take more and more. It takes more and more of your life. Eventually, when you get totally addicted, you're totally vulnerable. You've lost all your authority, and it's now taking everything from your life. So what's the ultimate thing an idol can ask you to sacrifice uh, in, in worship to it? When it gets to the terminal phase where it's delivering nothing, demanding everything, what can it ask you to give? Your life is the natural response. Absolutely not. Uh, that's not the gr greatest thing it can ask. Your child's life. 
So the greatest, I mean, what would I rather give uh, if you put me to it, my life or my child's life? I'd give my life in a heartbeat. So what idols always demand at the terminal phase is the sacrifice of children because that's the most precious thing you can ask a community to give. How long did it take from Can for Canaanite religion to get, get to the point where it was sacrificing human beings and children? Hundreds of years, perhaps a thousand years. I mean, it's, it's not an instant. The, the best idols work relatively well for a long time, but eventually they stop delivering, and you're like, oh, oh, it's not working. Better give the idol more. Better serve it more faithfully. What else can we give? And eventually you're sacrificing your kids. So technology, we're like in the first inning of the game of the idol of technology, and it has worked spectacularly for our whole society. But is it going to keep working? Or is it going to start working less and less well? We're going to feel more and more vulnerable the more actually authority it purports to give us. And what are we going to start sacrificing to it? <laughs> so, and then people are like, oh, well, that's crazy. We'd never sacrifice children. To <laughs> and then you start thinking about, actually, in some ways, this is already happening. It's already happening. And in, in parts of the world that are not constrained by the leftovers leftovers of the Judeo-Christian system, people are already developing the technology in Korea and China to clone human beings, extract value organs from them and other things, and basically manufacture human beings, our own children, in order to technologically solve challenges to human health. It's already happening. So that's the power of idolatry. And the other name for this, by the way, just to get all on the board, and then I'm really going to try to wrap up, is injustice. Because injustice is just a social system in which some people have a lot of authority with very little vulnerability, and it's always at the expense of other people having vulnerability without authority. So, uh, I think I probably should stop there. Let me see if there's anything I just felt compelled to say. No, I think, so, it's the, what I like about these is they're both pictures of the way the world should be, so what is our vocation? It's to bear the image. It's to add order and abundance, to add utility and beauty, to grow in authority and to grow in vulnerability. What has gone wrong, that's the other axis. The world is now, we seek to make a machine. We actually end up with more chaos because seeking a machine is a kind of idolatry of the world. The world was not designed to be a machine. We try to make it into one. That makes us utilitarians, which cre creates counter-movements, the romantic movement, uh, in history, the Romanticism is the response to industrialization in, in Europe, and it's this kind of overprivileging of the, the usefully, unusefully beautiful. And most deeply, I think, I actually think this is the deepest one, which is that instead of pursuing authority and vulnerability, we've sought authority without vulnerability. And now most of the world lives down here, and the image is completely lost when we live on that axis. So the vocation is to move up and to the right as much as possible, but also what is it to restore the image? What interventions in this story would break the powers of idolatry and injustice? That's what Christians are in the world to do. That's enough. <laughs> so let's talk about it. What's, what are you thinking? Oh, you don't like safety. Yeah, that's fine. Right. Ah, complacency. Yeah, yeah. Yes. 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 
completely. And if I were to identify the corner where especially emerging adults are most tempted to spend time, it's actually not idolatry to, to me. I think the baby boomers were more like this. Like they were like, go, go for it, you know. I actually think college students and young adults want to hang out in safety. Neither, they don't want to act and they don't want to risk. Or they're afraid of those two. That's what cohabitation is. I mean, to, to marry another is to take incredible authority. With this ring, I thee wed. That is a statement of authority. I pledge my body to you in some of the language. That's also vulnerability, right? Huge, both, right? So what if we could just, just move in together? Like it's minimizing both authority and risk. And that's totally what we're all choosing. <laughs> what else? Yeah. Ah, right. Yes. 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 Wow. And we're like binge watching them. Um, yeah. I mean, wow. That's a very provocative way of reading it. I think. Uh, I think you're honest. Well, I think, I mean, Jesus names Mammon. I mean, it's one of the only demons, one of the only idols he names. It's got to be pretty important. Um, and it is true that the, the worship of Mammon, I mean, that really starts with the invention of certain techniques of finance, or, or the success of Mammon takes off way before technology, really. Like, it's, it starts really taking off in the Renaissance. And da Vinci imagines a technological world, but he can't create it. Whereas the bankers actually create a world of, of liquidity of capital and finance. Right, exactly. Right. If only you'd had one. And, and the, other, the other thing I would, that that prompts me to think is I actually think, and I think I'm kind of bound to think this unless I am going to make a real turn in my life and become truly Amish, I have to believe that there's some aspects of technology that actually participate in image bearing. I actually think there's a lot of technology that does in genuinely increase capacity for meaningful action and can be used in ways that are properly vulnerable. I, um, so that makes me think that actually technology, that like any good thing it can be an idol, mammon is a name for the, the idol of money. Money also can be a, a, a means to flourishing all these things. In fact, you, 
you, want, you have to have some medium of exchange to, to, to tap the abundance of the world. That's all fine. But mammon is the idol underneath money, and technology has become its servant. I think that's right. And we might even want to distinguish, I have a feeling a little may have done this, between technology as the neutral ability to manip- manipulate the world in fruitful ways, and techne, I think was his phrase maybe, for the idol of controlling the world, making the world a machine. Exactly. Right. Yes, and specifically the, it's even stronger. I I mean, it is described as the love, but I I think it's it's the devotion, (laughs) in the sense of you. If I worship you, you will allow me this life. And the way I think about money, so obviously, in one sense, this whole quest for authority without vulnerability is a quest for a certain kind of power, not, I wouldn't say it's the quest for the true power, true power is actually here, but the thing about money is it's, uh, it's countable, it's storable, and it's fungible. <laughs> uh, it's countable, storable, fungible power. So most kinds of power I can't know how much I have, so how much power do I have in this room? Well, I think no one's got... Dr- <laughs> Seven. Yeah. Like, who knows, right? It's really hard to tell. Like, it's, you're always kind of wondering, how much of a difference am I making? You know. But money, you can count it. You know exactly how much you have. Most power you can't store. So I've been given an hour of power right now. <laughs> Has a ring to it. Um, but I only get it until, you know, 10 of or whatever, and then I'm done. I, only, I have to use it now. But money, I can save and use it another time. So it's power that I can... Decide, ooh, I'll use that later. That's very appealing. And then fungible, I can't exchange most of the kinds of power I have for something else. I can't turn it into something else. I just have to use, it's my contingent power today to do whatever I've been doing. But money, you can turn it into all kinds of other things. So it's the most, most idolatrous form of power because it has these properties we wish all of our power had. And you can really show it off. Yes, and it, yes, it is, right. That's another interesting thing about power is how hard it is to ostense power, to, to be ostensibly powerful actually takes a lot of work to figure out how to do that. But money gives you shortcuts to display power. Yeah. Right. Yes. Other thoughts? Other? Yeah, James. <laughs> Well, I mean, isn't the, I mean, the most honest answer I think would first have to be, I don't know for sure, because it's very dangerous to try to map onto God our experience in the world. So, for instance, we live within time, unidirectional time, where the future is unknown to us. We don't believe that's the case for God. We believe that somehow God comprehends all times. And so time is a huge component of risk for human beings or for creatures in a way that it's not for the creator. And, and I would even suppose that God understood... I mean, there, there are these hints of a 
a cosmic rebellion that sometimes somehow happens outside the framework of the cosmos, maybe, so that God even knows there's this sort of pushback against his rule and reign and goodness. And the serpent is in the garden, after all. But an, another part of me wants to say that God, it's part of the character of God to empty himself in such a way that creatures have real freedom. And that means that there is an indeterminate quality to exactly how the creatures will respond, the image bearers in particular who have reason and relationship, how they'll respond. And I, I, that's where I'm a Wesleyan. I mean, but I understand the Reformed tradition hooks that up a different way. Right. 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 No. Right. Right. It has. It bears on the risk aspect. How much of a risk? That's good. Genesis 2 account is the Lord God walks in the garden in the cool of the day, but apparently at other times of the day, he's not as directly present. And there's a kind of a withdrawing. Is God not sovereign over the garden all the time? Of course. But there is this withdrawing of the divine presence to make space for the man and the woman to talk to snakes. And yeah, it seems that's the case. This, you probably can sense... First of all, I'm very excited by this third one in particular. The next book is about that. And it has huge implications for what we think leadership is. And all of us, I think there is this, I really think there's a demonic force in the world that is out to convince us that being like God is up to the left. And that translates into the way we lead, which is that we think that, it, that leading is about getting off this up into the right track and getting more and more authority with less and less risk, which causes us to actually impoverish the people we lead of their own image-bearing capacity. And when you look at how leaders fail, it's always on this axis. And it's and uh, this is the real kicker, often our communities want us to tell them that we are up and to the left and they can be too. And often what communities want from their, their leaders is a a promise that we aren't as vulnerable as we fear as a community. 
And the huge challenge of leadership is how do you keep moving? How do you keep, as you gain authority, like I was thinking about this with this church, because the folks from this church, you guys have grown very quickly, so you've, you've acquired a lot of authority. I would say one of the massive spiritual challenges of that is how do you keep your exposure to risk commensurate with your growth and, and ostensible success? It is so easy, like it is so natural to get blown in, over to the left on this graph as you move up. It's like the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. Totally. Right. Yes. That's right. So at some point, yes. The, the calibration requires that not only our position, but we can most determine our position's actual movement based on the recalibration of another set. Wow. To- totally. And I think there's a lot of mystery in how it happens. Um, because, but, but I think what I really love about what you said is the, the proper move, the, the, the temptation is to move just to withdraw from authority. Like, well, at least do no harm. <laughs> and that would be okay if five to six billion people in the world didn't live over here. But if there are image bearers stuck over here, it is not an option for us to just say, well, I'm not going to leave. And if people aren't, I mean, in a way, what you were doing, Nate, was identifying the one of the most, another powerful idol of our time is the entertainment complex. And it's robbing like 300 million Americans of their image bearing capacity, let alone the rest of the world that's watching it. And for us to just opt out and say, well, too much for me to deal with, like is to leave all these people captive. A few people are, you know, the folks at FX who are getting paid really well are living up here. But what they're generating is this world of people who are living attenuated lives down here, or maybe down here. So I, I do think you can ask, in any given situation, what will increase my risk here? If, I, if I'm being granted a lot of authority off the top, what can I do? I don't need to, our instinct is always, I need more authority than I have. But actually, maybe our instinct should be, well, I've been given a lot of authority. Now how do I get the exposure to risk I need? And then when you're working with people in poverty, literal or metaphorical, the question is, how do I increase this person's capacity for action? And what intervention would open them up so that they realize they had some dimension of freedom they don't realize they have? I'm just thinking, like, all of these easy stories. <laughs> like, it's about stewarding what you're given, not bearing it. Huh. Oh, totally. Might be saying that that movement is not prioritizing sacrifice, right? I mean, in some degree, 
So, in, as I've thought about it, it's interesting. I actually think leaders, specifically leaders, have to go to two places that we don't want to go. One is sacrifice. So, in many versions of the Apostles' Creed, said he descended to the dead. That's going all, like, the furthest down here you can. Once you're dead, you're, in one sense, you are beyond wounding, I guess, but in another sense, your, your body certainly is completely vulnerable to in, insult, injury, you know, desecration. So, leaders have to, at key moments in leadership, there's an there's a emptying of self and a, and a willingness to suffer everything. The other thing leaders have to do, oddly, is bear hidden vulnerability, which means it will look to people we're leading as if we are over here because they can't see the vulnerability that we bear. They see our authority, but they don't see our vulnerability. Yeah. This, to me, is the, dr the drama of leadership is that as I'm here with you today, I'm given all kinds of visible markers of authority. And I, and I take advantage of them. I mean, I'm standing up. I'm at the front of the room. There's all kind of, I'll be given a, what I call the wireless headset of authority tonight. Right? I've got, there's all these ways in which you in, immediately, the introduction, the fact that my name is written down, that I have books that I've written. Everyone can see the markers of my authority. But I come, actually, with all kinds of sense of exposure to risk. And I hear, I hear Nate talk. I mean, just very practically and honestly. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that is so brilliant and it's so funny, and it's so moving, and I am not going to be nearly as brilliant, funny, or moving, and yet I have to come after him. And whether or not that's even totally accurate, it is the vulnerability I feel, right? But unless I disclose that to you, you would probably never imagine that that actually can be quite a consuming reality for me. And all leadership is like this. The people we're leading look at us, and they're like, oh, you know, Jared has power. He's the, whatever your title is. <laughs> Maybe you don't have power anymore. I don't know. Uh, but... <laughs> Once upon a time. And, uh, but we know, we know all the things that aren't going well in the thing we're trying to pull off. We know all the risks that people aren't aware of, and we cannot disclose all of them, It would be my premise. Partly because I'm not here to get help from you from my vulnerability. Like, if I feel insecure about tag-teaming with Andrew Peterson and, and Nate, it's really not your job to help me overcome that vulnerability. <laughs> I have other people who help me with that. My job, actually, as a leader, is to help bear your vulnerabilities. And if I bring all mine out into the open, and if you knew everything about the exposure to risk in my life, the broken relationships, the temptations that could take me to... I mean, it would paralyze all of us. We wouldn't get anything else done. It wouldn't help you in any way. So every leader has to bear hidden vulnerability. But, of course, this means every leader is at at risk of ending up as an idol. And how you bear that faithfully is the key question of leadership, I think. Yeah? It's going to sound simplistic, but I think part of that is about um, living within the community that you're leading. And, and you're right, even, even close, smaller community, we're not going to show every vulnerability to everyone in that community. Right. But if we're living shoulder to shoulder, yep. It makes a big difference. At least we're hopefully off the pedestal and off the right. glasses of the way we live our life. And then that's half the battle, isn't it? It is. Although I would say one of the things I had to learn in the black church when I apprenticed in the black church, where leaders don't carry themselves that way, they carry themselves with a lot of visible authority. 
is that when you're in a community of vulnerability, leaders don't always have the luxury of having that kind of openness. They have all the same vulnerabilities any of us would, but, but they have to carry it in a different way because of the different nature of the community's capacity and, and all the other threats on it. But that is part of it. And Jesus was very open. Like, so he starts telling his disciples, the Son of Man has to go to Jerusalem, be imprisoned, killed, uh, and on the third day raised again. So he's very open, but on the other hand, his, his disciples do not get it at all. And, and I think this is very deeply what the transfiguration is about, because Luke tells us what he's discussing with Moses and Elijah on the mountain. It says he, they were discussing his departure, which he was to accomplish, accomplish at Jerusalem. Jesus has disclosed to his followers that he's going to his death, but none of them get it, and Peter and, you know, is actively resisting it. Jesus, I think the transfiguration is less an impressive show of authority for Peter, James, and John than it is Jesus meeting with two others who actually understand where he's going. And no human being can get it. No living human being can. But Moses and Elijah can, so they're like called in to be his accountability partners. (laughs) And they're like, okay, let's talk about what you're about to do. I really think that's what the transfiguration is. And, And... so you both have to have that level of transparency, but I think every leader needs companions who in some way are not dependent on our leadership with whom we can be completely transparent and who know every risk we're facing. Otherwise, it's very dangerous. Yeah. Yes, of course. Right. Right. Sure. You know, no, it's a good pushback. Yeah, my niece, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. But there are dimensions of risk that we have to bear as leaders that we can't disclose in the same way. Maybe it doesn't apply. This is a very low-stakes environment. I'm only with you for a weekend. What is there to lose, really? Right? But if we're in a long institutional relationship and I'm in a position of leadership, there will be risks. They may not be personal. They might be things I know about the larger environment we're in or the, or the, the you know, uh, dysfunction of a particular other member of the team. And I, uh, Nate alluded to this last night in a question about what do you do when you're leading a small group? And he said, you have to be willing to bear conflict. Well, part of that is an, is an ability to hold all this. I just think there are going to be exposure to risk that you will not be able to share, and that if you did share, would not actually increase trust, to be honest. I agree Exactly. Exactly. So there's a healthy way to bear hidden vulnerability, and then there, then most of us, at one time or another, get very stuck in an unhealthy way. I'm really aware of the time. I don't want to cut it off, but you guys who are hosting, tell tell us how long we have. Five more minutes till till twelve, maybe. Uh, so many hands, Brandon. It totally is. Exactly. Yes. That's the great discovery as you 
if you become a parent or even just as you get older to realize, oh my God, that was really hard for my parents. Like, you don't think of that as a child. But, and they couldn't, it would have been very irresponsible to expose all of that. Anger, disappointment, they have to hold that. Yeah. Yes, good pushback. That's, no, that's, <laughs> sure, comment. Well, I just was thinking it's hard to quantify that vulnerability as leaders, put a name to that. And then one of the things I was thinking of was as a dictator or someone sort of yes. perpetuating injustice, yes. you don't want to take responsibility for the effect of your leadership. And I think. Ah. Huh. As leaders, the standard you will be held accountable to. Right. I mean, that's on a scale too. And so the yes. vulnerability that you risk in as you grow in authority, also yes. you're getting out there and you're going to be held accountable to the yes. way you lead. 
And actually, I would say accountability in all of its dimensions is a form of vulnerability. Because if I'm not accountable, then I'm not at risk of someone measuring and assessing. But if I open up my financial accounts, the accounts of what kind of flourishing have I brought or not brought in other people's lives, that's, that's vulnerable. And that's what dictators avoid. Because actually accountability is a very powerful form of, of exposure to risk. Yeah, opening yourself up to other people to assess, and ultimately to God to assess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yes. Being sharing of exactly, exactly, and in in fact, sometimes that as has been alluded to, that that emotional transparency can actually be well. At worst, it can be quite manipulative. It can actually be a way of gaining authority in our culture, not in every culture. It doesn't work like in Haiti. If a pastor does that, like he's out. But in our culture, if you do that, they're like, oh, I feel so close to you. But no, absolutely. And I'm, I have struggled with which words to use, but I ended up with vulnerability. Partly, I want to access all that it says in our culture because I think it speaks to a real need. But yes, it is ultimately about real risk. It's about meaningful risk. And it's not always a meaningful risk for me to be emotionally transparent. Sometimes that's a very easy thing to do. I'm still in control. Now, one thing I'm not in control of is the time. You all have been very uh, wonderfully energetic and engaged, so thanks. <laughs>